Well, if you've got your Bibles, open to John chapter 19, verse 1. So last week we looked at John chapter 18, where Jesus was betrayed, arrested and put on trial. And the chapter finished with a beautiful picture of the substitutionary atonement or payment for our sins, with the guilty Barabbas being set free because the innocent Jesus was crucified in his place. So only one person could be released, and the crowd chose Barabbas. And because he was released instead of Jesus, Jesus took his punishment, which represents our punishment, the punishment of every person who's ever lived, every sin which has ever been committed. So this week we're going to see Jesus sentenced to crucifixion, beaten, scourged or whipped, and then crucified. We might not get through the whole chapter. And also Jesus says, it is finished, the most powerful and most important words ever spoken, I believe. So just a reminder of the six trials, there's the three Jewish or religious trials, and the first one was before Annas, and then Caiaphas, and then before the Sanhedrin. And then there was the first one before Pilate, he sent him off to Herod, and then come back to Pilate again, and we start off in chapter 19 with the third civil trial before Pilate. This is the last one, and this is where he's going to be sentenced to crucifixion. So before we start, I'll pray. Father, thank you for your blessings. Lord, thank you for the gift of life that you gave us, which resulted only because you gave your own life for us. Lord, we had a debt we could not pay, and you paid a debt you did not owe. And Lord, I pray that We'll be forever grateful for the price that you paid for us on the cross. Lord, this awesome demonstration of lavish love, Lord, of unlimited love and unconditional love. Lord, you loved us when we were sinners, and you saved us when we were sinners, Lord. And if you loved us then, you can only love us more now. So help us never to doubt your love for us, and help us to always be remembering that you delight in us and your love will never fail. We praise you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's just start reading in chapter 19. We'll read the whole chapter. Even if we don't get through it, it's good to read the whole thing. All right, verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, or whipped him. And the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews! And they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him away and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to our law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. Therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid, and went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? 
Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greatest sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the Place of the Skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the centre. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write, The King of the Jews, but he said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they have crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said therefore among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour that disciple took her to his own home. After this, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate 
that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, not one of his bones shall be broken. And again another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus, and Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with the spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day, for the tomb was nearby. So that's the uh, the whole chapter. Now, it's been rightly said that people are a lot like tea bags. Do you know why? Well, you never really know their true flavour until they get into hot water. So, Pontius Pilate, he's in a political boiling pot. And he's determined to keep the peace at any price, even if it means ignoring his own conscience. So, the cries of crucify him, crucify him, are ringing in his ears, and Pilate buckles under the pressure of the crowd. And he's hoping that by subjecting Jesus to 39 lashes with the flagellum, that perhaps the crowd will be satisfied. So, that's a bit of a overall thing about Pilate there. So let's start at verse 1. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Now, the scourging or whipping that took place was painful beyond our understanding, and is actually predicted. Isaiah 53 verse 5 But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So where it says there, by whose stripes you were healed, is primarily spiritual healing, but also includes physical healing. So the provision for our healing, physically and spiritually, is made by the sufferings or stripes of Jesus. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2.24. And the physical aspect of our healing is partly received now and completely when we are resurrected and get our new bodies. Now, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Now, this is a nasty thing to happen to you. It almost kills you because your back is ripped open. I'll get into that in a minute. But, but the main thing here is that Pilate has already declared Jesus not guilty. So what right did he have to whip him, to get him scourged with the 40 minus 1 number of strokes across his back? 
maybe, this is what some people think, maybe Pilate is trying to help the crowd feel a bit of compassion for Jesus, seeing him like come out almost dead, basically, you know, from blood loss and from his back being ripped open. He's already been beaten, his face is all puffy, and he can't really tell who he is anymore. And so maybe he's thinking, well, he suffered enough, let him be. Let's let him go now. So maybe he's thinking that. Who knows? Now, why did the Romans scourge or whip people? Well, it was used to beat the prison as a form of punishment. That's the first reason. The second reason, it was used to extract a confession from the prisoner. And finally, in cases of crucifixion, it was used to weaken the victim so he died more quickly on the cross. So, with Jesus the Roman soldier would beat the victim harder and harder until they confessed their crime. But Jesus had no crime to confess, so they just kept beating him harder and harder because he wouldn't say anything, he had nothing to say. So all the blows that Jesus got were all full strength. And with regards to crucifixion, as I said, it's to weaken the victim to a state just short of collapse and death. So you'd be in so much pain, have lost so much blood, that you would be almost dead before you went on to the cross. And you're basically, to summarize it really quickly, your back would be ripped open and all the skeletal muscles would be like mincemeat. Another thing that Jesus suffered is a thing called, this is a medical term, hematidrosis. And that's when the blood vessels in your skin rupture. And that happened when he was in the garden praying. And that makes your skin very, very tender, very sensitive. So the pain just for anybody going through the scourging would be horrendous. But this is even worse because his skin was already super tender. So, you know, you go to a sore spot and you touch, you go, oh, that really hurts. But imagine beating that sore spot, you know. It's just, the pain was just unbelievable. So, in addition to all this, the physical and mental abuse meted out by the Jews and the Romans, there was a lack of food, water and sleep. And basically, he was quite weak. Just think of him as in that state at this point. And verse 4, Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. So again, not guilty. Verse 5, Then Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So remember that by this point, Jesus had had a bag put or something put over his head, been beaten repeatedly, causing his face to swell. And you know, you get beaten and you can't see what's coming. It's even worse. And then he was whipped 39 times and the Romans would be giving backhanders. It said they hit him with their hands. So he's already puffy and bleeding and now they're still hitting him. And then he comes out. So I imagine that you wouldn't actually recognize him at this point. Isaiah says he was unrecognizable. Isaiah 52, 14. He was marred beyond recognition. So Pilate says, here is A man. Literally, here is a man. And he's coming out in this state. This is what the people are looking at. Now, what do you think he was thinking about 
as he endured their suffering. I have an idea. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 2. It says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So I would suggest that we are the joy that was set before him, the restored relationship with humanity. So as he's going through all this, we were on his mind, we were on his heart when he took those blows, felt that pain, and endured the unspeakable suffering. It was for me, it was for you. And it's so important to remember that we bring joy to our Lord and we abide in him. God gets a whole lot of pleasure from us being in relationship with him. And we think of ourselves as, well, what can I give to God? But we can give God a lot just by being in his presence, just by returning his love. Because God is a God of love, when we return love, that's his source of pleasure, is that community, that family. and. That's why we can so greatly bless our Lord and at the same time we can so greatly grieve him when we sin. So another way of thinking about it, if we can deeply grieve him with our disobedience then we can also greatly bless him with our love as you serve him with a grateful heart. So Jesus' suffering was a very personal thing that he did for each one of us individually. And I've heard it said that if you were the only person to exist then Jesus would have still died for you. Jesus suffered and died for us for one single reason, and that is he loved us. And we read that in Romans 5.8. It says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Christ, as he's dying on the cross, he's doing it with the motivation of love. And verse 6, Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Wow. Jesus is mildly on recognition, just about collapsing, and they have no compassion whatsoever. How hard-hearted can you be? The hate toward him was just incredible. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This is a third time that Pilate has come out and said, I find no fault in him. Now, this finding by Pilate that he finds no fault in him has never, ever been disputed by any historian or cynic. No person would dare say that Jesus was not perfect. It's a historical fact. And according to many historical records, Pilate himself committed suicide not long after this because of the the guilt he would have felt of betraying an innocent man and probably understanding that he was God. After the crucifixion and the darkness and all that, he would have understood that, oh, what have I done? And like Judas. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. So, you find a Jehovah's Witness or a Mormon or any other cultist, and they might say, Jesus never claimed deity. He never claimed to be God. Well, bring him right here to John chapter 19, verse 7. This is the reason that Jesus died, because he made himself to be God. He made himself to be the Son of God, which is a title for God. Okay, 
This is why they killed him, because he claimed to be God. In verse 8, Therefore when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. Now Pilate understands this language too. This is God. This is way out of my realm. (laughs) I'm getting a bit nervous here. I'm really nervous. And in the other Gospels, you know, his wife has this dream as well. It was his vision and she tells Pilate to have nothing to do with this man. And so instead of being angry with the Jews, he's more afraid of Jesus than ever. He's more afraid of this situation. He's fearful. And this demonstrates the strength of character and dignity Jesus maintained throughout this whole trial. And Isaiah 53.7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Jesus, I believe, did open his mouth to talk, but not to complain and not to cry out. Okay, So this was a real test of faith. Now, if it was me, I would be saying by this time, hey, this is not fair. Look, I've been beaten. My face is already puffy. Can't you stop hitting me now? This is just not fair. I haven't done anything wrong, and yet I'm being treated as the worst criminal in human history. But Jesus didn't do that. He didn't open his mouth to complain. And verse 9, And went again into the praetorium and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have power to crucify you and power to release you? Jesus answered, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. So Pilate's sin is going to be the lack of justice. But the sin of the chief priests is that of rejecting the Messiah, which in Jesus' eyes here is a greater sin because it's a premeditated sin. Pilate here is in a very difficult situation and he's weak as a man and yes, he'll do the wrong thing, but the chief priests have rejected all the evidence that God has given them. The prophets, a thousand years or so or more, have been telling about this event and they've rejected everything. So God is always on the throne. Everything goes according to God's plan. Every person in authority is there because God put them there. And that's why we must show them respect, even if they are corrupt. And Romans 13 verse 1 says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you let this man go, you are not Caesar's friend. Whoever makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. So, this is like blackmail. As I said last week, I won't repeat it now, but Pilate had made a couple of errors and caused bloodshed and riots and stuff. And Caesar says, that's enough if you do it again. Basically, you're out. Pilate doesn't want to lose his position. And so the Jewish leaders are basically saying, "Uh, we're going to get you in trouble with Caesar. You're going to lose your position. And so Pilate goes, oh. And that was enough to make him crumble. Up to this point, he'd been doing everything he could to free Jesus. But now, he folds. He crumbles. 
and he's willing to murder an innocent man because at that moment his career was more important than his eternal future. It's like the rich young ruler making his riches more important than his eternal future when he refused to repent and follow Jesus. So remember this, eternal life is a free gift, but it will cost you everything. Okay, What Jesus gives you is free, but for you to receive that, you need to let go of everything else. It's going to cost you everything. Like Paul said, I counted all these things as garbage or rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. So, for Pilate, his position, his power, his lifestyle, all the things that went with it, all the perks of being the, the governor, were more important. So when Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat in a place that is called the pavement, but in Hebrew, and Gabbatha. So it's kind of ironic. Pilate sits down in his judgment seat to make a decision. But what he's actually doing is judging himself. He's saying, I choose not to believe. I choose not to do the right thing. I choose not to submit to Christ and do what is best for him. And so people today, they sit back and say, I'm going to analyze, scrutinize, and evaluate Jesus Christ. In reality, however, they're not judging him, but their reaction to him is they're judging themselves because he is the king of kings regardless of what they decide. (laughs) They can't decide who he is. He is who he is. But their judgment is going to choose their response to who he is. Okay, He is going to have his way whether you choose to repent and believe or don't choose to repent and believe. So the judgment seat you're occupying now as an unbeliever, if you're an unbeliever, is that of your own judgment. And how you respond to him will determine whether you go to heaven or spend eternity in hell. Verse 14. Now it was the preparation day of the Passover, and about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. Now, truer words have never been spoken. These men, these high priests, these Jewish leaders, they modelled themselves on the worldly and evil example of Caesar. They loved money and not God. They were selfish and oppressed the people instead of serving them, just like the Roman Empire did. Jesus had tried to tell them this in John chapter 8, that they were of their father, the devil, but they didn't see it. But now... They are openly admitting it. God is not their king, their ruler, or their lord, like they said in John chapter 8. They live to please Caesar because then they benefit as well. They are basically saying, I don't belong to that kingdom. I have no king but this king, Caesar, who represents the world. So today, there are many who claim to be Christian, to follow God, but like most of the religious leaders, are false converts. How do you know? Well, when the hard times come, when it's time to submit to God's will, to give something up, well, they won't. They are, in effect, saying, I have no king but Caesar. I live only for myself and will not submit to God. I will not repent of my sin.
Now, there's also an irony here. What did the Jews want, most of all? What were they seeking? Apart from the Saviour. Well, the Saviour was part of this thing they wanted. They wanted freedom from oppression, from political oppression, right? So they wanted a political Messiah to deliver them from Caesar's oppression. But in rejecting Jesus, they now embrace Caesar. They're jumping into slavery, oppression, because the Roman Empire was oppressing them. And for me, thinking about it, it's a bit like the children of Israel wanting to go back to Egypt, back to the Iron Furnace, back into slavery. So they're rejecting the freedom that God is offering them and accepting and embracing the bondage that's in the world. Now, coming back to Israel, we know that Israel rejected God. Do you know that they rejected God three times? Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the Jews rejecting the father as they begged Samuel for a king to rule over them. Remember God said, they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. Here in John 19, we see them refusing the son as they cry, we have no king but Caesar. And finally, in Acts chapter 7, we see them resisting the spirit and they stone Stephen as a result of that resisting the spirit. Before the Sanhedrin, before all the Jewish leaders there, they reject Stephen's message. They reject the message from the spirit there. As Stephen said, they're resisting. So, Rejecting the Father in the Old Testament, refusing the Son in the Gospels, and resisting the Spirit in the Book of Acts caused the collapse of the people of Israel. But God is faithful. Even though they were spread out, and they were defeated, and many people were killed, and all the Jews were scattered everywhere, the Bible says in Romans 9-11 to that even though Israel has refused the Son, rejected the Father, and resisted the Spirit, God will keep his promises to her. And all of Israel, which is the believing remnant of Israel, shall be saved. It says in Isaiah, I think it's 11.11, that he will bring them back for the second time. So the first time was after the Babylonian captivity, and the second time is in 1948, when he brought them back into the land for the second time, fulfilling that prophecy. So God has not finished with Israel. Yes, they rejected him, but God's promises are not dependent on our performance. God's promises are unconditional and therefore Israel is still his people and he will use them in the future when the church is taken away. Uh, Verse 16, Then he delivered him to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. Now, in Latin, Golgotha is Calvary. So, when we call ourselves Calvary Chapel, we're literally calling ourselves the place of the skull, Chapel. It's the place where Jesus died. And it's a constant reminder that we exist only because of what Jesus did at Calvary. We always be reminded of the cross. It's the centerpiece of Christianity. It's a place where forgiveness comes from. So it's called the place of the skull because that's exactly what it looks like. Jesus was crucified on top of a white limestone cliff and there are holes in the cliff where the eyes and mouth would be on a face. So if you're looking at this thing, it's pretty spooky. We've been there. It looks like a massive skull, this cliff. 
So that's why they call it that, because it looks like that. Where they crucified him. Did you know, I just found this out last night when I was doing a bit of reading. In 1968, scientists for the first time discovered the remains of a man crucified in Jesus' era. The victim was nailed to the cross in a sitting position with both legs over sideways, so your knees sticking out to the side, ankles crossed over, and the nail penetrating the sides of both feet just below the heel. So your feet are pointing out. The arms were stretched out, each stabbed by a nail in the forearm. And uh, a guy called Dr. Nico House, a Hebrew University anatomy professor, says that this was a compulsive position, a difficult and unnatural posture, evidently to increase the agony of the sufferer. So that's interesting. I can't even get my legs in that position. Imagine trying to push yourself up with your knees sticking out to the side. It'd just be unbearable. You'd, yeah, you'd die pretty quick. Amazing amount of pain. So the traditional way of envisioning the crucifixion with both palms nailed to the cross and the leg stretching down with the nail piercing the feet frontally, it may be wrong. That's just what they found in history. It doesn't mean that everyone was crucified like that, but it could mean that Jesus was crucified like that. Now, Jesus dying on the cross. The physical pain is enormous. We've talked about that. But there's other pain that Jesus went through as well, and that is the spiritual pain. Jesus was made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, and the wrath of God we deserved was poured out on him. and. This type of suffering is way, way, way more difficult to bear than the physical suffering that Jesus went through. It'd be like, I believe, having a splinter, you know, the physical suffering representing having a splinter, and the spiritual suffering would be like having all your ribs broken or something like that, you know, not being able to breathe. And just remember that the main suffering is the spiritual suffering. The, the wrath of God being poured out on him. And two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. 19 and 20. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read the title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. So Hebrew was a, a theological language, Greek, the intellectual language, and Latin, the political language. So whatever persuasion you were, religious, political, or just your common language, you knew that Jesus was king. Verse 21, Therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. So finally, a bit of backbone in Pilate just as well, and the truth prevailed at this time. Verse 23, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. 
They therefore said among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now, it's interesting, according to Exodus 28, the high priest's robe was to be made of one piece of material. Jesus, being the great high priest, he also had a seamless robe. So here are the soldiers playing games on Golgotha, even as Jesus was dying for their sins. And are we doing that, I wonder? Those in the prosperity doctrine or the name it, claim it camp say, I'll get some nice clothes, a faster car, a bigger house, and or some physical healing on the basis of the finished work of the cross. Oh, look how I can benefit from this. It's a bit like the soldiers gambling for his clothes. So, in my view, it's a bit hard-hearted and it's a slap in the face to God. So, instead of gratefulness, there is only greed. So, Jesus' sufferings on the cross should soften us and cause us to become grateful and teach us to love and serve others selflessly. Jesus modelled on the cross what real, sacrificial love looks like. Will I follow in his steps and be willing to give everything up for him and suffer for him, just like he gave up everything for me and suffered for me? Am I willing to die for him like he died for me? Will I return his love? Or will I remain selfish and live for myself? And I just need to add that you don't have to believe in the prosperity doctrine to be selfish. Any Christian can be selfish. And it says that the scripture might be fulfilled. Now, it may seem that Jesus has no control over these events, yet the invisible hand of God is guiding everything so that specific prophecy is specifically fulfilled. Verse 25, Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by. So, how many people were there at the cross supporting him? Only five people. When Jesus was healing the sick and feeding the multitudes, he captivated people's attention. And like, you know, moths going to a light, you know, everyone was drawn to him. But as his ministry progressed, his teaching became a little more demanding and more difficult. And the first people to leave were the false converts. It says in the gospel that, you know, he knew their heart. These people stopped following him and Jesus said, I know their hearts. They're not really my disciples. They're just following me for their physical benefits. So they're gone. But what we also find here is that the true disciples also started falling away. Only 70 shared the gospel of the kingdom, Luke 10 verse 1. Only 12 left everything to follow him. And of the 12, only three would be with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he spoke of his death. And in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prayed, only three were invited to be near him. And of the three, only one would be at the foot of the cross. So, of the twelve disciples, only John is at the foot of the cross. But there were four women there. Now, it mustn't have been easy for Mary to watch her son convulsing in pain, or for her sister to hear the curses hurled at him. It was not easy for the wife of Cleopas to see the spit of the crowd running down his face. 
offer Mary Magdalene to see his blood flowing from his wounds. But these four women, lovers of the Lord and followers of him, were there at the foot of the cross, no matter how great the price, no matter how deep the pain. So they're following their Lord in very difficult circumstances. This is a picture for us. It would have been hard. They got this mob of people, you know, two and a half million people in Jerusalem. The crowd is shouting curses, all these kinds of things at Jesus. Come on, save yourself. You can save others. Why don't you save yourself? Get down off the cross. Come on. And all this type of stuff. And they have to listen to this. It would have been scary. The crowd was incensed against Jesus. Also remember that none of them understood about the resurrection yet. So they're in deep grief as well. So how true it is today, I believe, that as the stakes get higher, as the difficulty increases, as the suffering increases, the number of believers willing to follow and remain faithful to count the cost are so few. So few people are willing to give all to follow Jesus especially in our Western culture. Most of us, I believe, are willing to give some things up. Fewer are willing to give many things up, but very few are willing to give everything up for the sake of Christ. Remember that the degree to which we are willing to suffer loss for him is the same as the resurrection power that will flow through us. So a little... Willingness to give up things leads to only a small amount of power in our lives. A greater willingness to give up things and suffer for him leads to greater power in our lives. I just want to read a couple of verses here. The first one is Philippians one twenty nine. It says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It has been granted. This is a privilege In our comfortable culture, we don't see suffering as a privilege. But from God's point of view, to suffer on behalf of Christ is a privilege. Do you remember the disciples, Peter and John, when they were beaten? What did they do? They rejoiced that they were worthy of the sufferings of Christ. It's a different mindset, isn't it? What about Philippians 3, 7-11? This is Paul talking about all the things he's given up. I once thought these things were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. Sounds good if you stop there. But what's the next part of that? I'll read that bit again. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. So, where does fellowship come? I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. So, 
D.L. Moody famously said, No one can sum up all God is able to accomplish through one solitary life, wholly yielded, adjusted, and obedient to him. I've used that quote before. I'll say it again. No one can sum up all God is able to accomplish through one solitary life, wholly yielded, adjusted, and obedient to him. So God is wanting to work through us in amazing ways if we only yield ourselves to him and be willing to give all these other things up. He said to his mother, woman. Now, the word for woman here is goon, G-U-N-E. I think it's how you say it. Do you remember when he used this word before? Yeah, at the wedding, about three years earlier, a bit more than three years. I'm thinking that this would have caused Mary's mind to go back to that time three or so years ago at the wedding where she wanting, maybe wanting to restore her reputation because they all thought he was an illegitimate child uh, that she'd be messing around. She said, oh, you know, now's the time. Son, reveal yourself. Show yourself to be the Messiah. Change this water into wine. And uh, he said, "Uh uh-uh. That's not the way it works. You don't tell me what to do. It's in God's time. Jesus said in John 2, 4, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus did provide wine for the wedding, but no one knew about it except for the slaves. Yet here on the cross, Mary's request is finally answered. For it's at the cross when even the most cynical Roman centurion would look at him and say, Truly, this must be the Son of God. So Mary's validation comes from the cross when people think, Ah, he's not an illegitimate child. He was born of the Holy Spirit. He was God. So after a lifetime, 33 years or so of, you know, being looked down upon, finally people understand that her son was special. And then he said, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, John, Behold your mother. So he says to his mother, woman, Behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Now, why didn't Jesus just let his other brothers and sisters look after his mother? Couldn't they provide for her? Couldn't they look after her? Maybe. But he bypassed the earthly bloodline, his family bloodline, blood family, physical family, and established a new family. Jesus had four half-brothers and a bunch of half-sisters. We don't know how many sisters. So Psalm 69 verse 8 says, I have become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. So at this point, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They will later, like James and Jude and that. They will later, but at this point they don't. So Jesus wants his mother looked after in a Christian family. So he says, all right, Mary, I want you in this family, this spiritual family is more important than the physical family. And so he creates a new family based on a different bloodline, if I can say that. And yeah, John was there and John was someone who loved Jesus and would take care of her. I find it amazing that this is just before he's going to you know, give up the ghost. As it says in the King James Version, 
if there was ever a moment when Jesus deserves to be self-focused, it's here. He's gone through all the suffering. He's suffering all the eternal wrath of God being poured out on him. And what does he do? He's still caring for other people. It's just incredible. He's others-centered to the very end. And I just find that amazing that Jesus can be so focused on loving other people even when he's just about to give up the ghost, to give up his spirit. So I'm going to stop there. And I'm going to talk about the family connection a bit more next week. But it's just what we've covered so far is just there's a lot of application. So I just remind us of what some of those things are, that our spiritual family is more important than our physical family. It's not to say we neglect our physical family, but the relationships in the church are very important. We need to um, cultivate those relationships. And the women, the four women and John at the cross, only a few people willing to truly count the cost and give up their reputation, risk death, risk or experience the mocking and the jeering and and to suffer with Christ in all that. Again, not many people are willing to give up a lot. Very few people are willing to give up everything. But God wants us to be willing to give up everything, to empty ourselves like Jesus did, and then he can fill us, and he can use us to do things that we couldn't imagine doing. I was reading in Jeremiah, it says, um, come to me and I will show you great and mighty things, or things that haven't been revealed yet. So Jesus wants to use us to do things that we can't imagine, to work in this world, to change people, to be effective for him in his kingdom, to have eternal reward for those things, and to experience that deeper relationship with him. Father, I just thank you for the scriptures that we've been reading today. Lord is calling us to come to the cross. He's calling us to empty ourselves of all our worldliness, our temporary thinking, and start to think eternally, to start to think using kingdom thinking instead of uh, worldly thinking. And I just pray that you'll help us to meditate on these things, to read these verses over and to pray about them, and Lord, that you will change us, show us if there's anything in our hearts that we're not willing to give up, any sin that we're holding on to and not wanting to give up any possessions, any goals, any position, any whatever it might be that we're not willing to give up, that we can lay it on the altar and we can be a living sacrifice with our entire life on the altar. So just help us to do that, Father, to be willing to give up everything for you, to lay down our lives for you, to die for you if necessary. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.